Welcome to the Franchise You Podcast, where key industry leaders provide education and inspiration. Here's your host, Dr. Kathy Gosser, the Director of the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. Welcome to another edition of Franchise You. With me today, I have an incredible leader, Omar Simmons. Omar is currently the CEO of Exaltair Capital Partners, which is a lower mid-market private equity firm. But let me tell you a little bit about Omar. So he grew up in inner city Boston, specifically Roxbury, for those of you familiar with Boston. And he lived with his mom while attending Boston Tech High School. So during that time, he ran track. And he actually had a full ride to Georgetown on a track scholarship. But Omar really wanted to have a bit more of an academic background and focus on his studies. So he actually cold called the track coach at Princeton, a man by the name of Larry Ellis, who was the first African-American head coach in any Ivy League sport. And though Princeton didn't provide scholarships for track, Omar really wanted to go there. And so he was provided with a needs-based financial aid. But he still had to come up with $1,000. Now, $1,000, as Omar told me back then, felt like a million dollars today. But he managed to do it. And what a story from there. So, Omar, instead of me continuing to tell your incredible story, can you take us from here, starting out of college, maybe like what did you study in Princeton and take us to your first job? Certainly, Kathleen. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really humbled and excited about the the conversation we're about to have. Uh, Yeah, so I went to Princeton, and um, Princeton's a liberal arts school. So uh, I had the opportunity to study a lot of different things, um, which kind of fit my personality. And then uh, I could integrate that into whatever interest I had. Uh, Ultimately, I decided I wanted to go into business, even though I majored in uh, what they call the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Policy. It's the only um, major where you have to apply to get in. And when you apply at Princeton, you end up studying all the different social sciences. And then you apply that to solve some sort of policy issue in your junior and senior year. So it took kind of the theoretical of a bunch of different you know, disciplines and gave me the opportunity to apply to real world solutions. And I said, wow, that's pretty neat. Um, I'd like to do that in business. So I decided to go into management consulting where you do similar types of work. You you try to figure out how to solve a particular problem. Obviously, there's a lot of talented people in these Fortune 100 companies that would hire us as clients. But what they lacked was maybe a little bit of objectivity and someone that didn't have particular functional bias. And so we would say, you know, let's look at all the information from a marketing perspective, from a finance perspective, from a strategy perspective, uh, from operations perspective, and let's think through what the the options are to improve the business in a particular area. And we can all kind of decide which path we're going to take and then how we're going to implement and track those new recommendations. And so for me, it was basically an extension of my college education Mm. because it, uh, in some ways, it was a liberal arts education in business. Oh, now that's a wonderful transition because then you went to work with venture capital. So what made you think about venture capital? Well, you know, you talked a little bit about my background. And when I reflect back, I guess I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur, right? So for me to go to college, I had to kind of figure out 
how to get the resources and how to navigate something that for me was a pretty foreign territory. Mm -hmm. And I was excited about being around people that found that process enjoyable, challenging, and stimulating. And so I said, well, I know how I can be around more cool entrepreneurs. I can leverage my experience with more formal business training and invest in them as partners. And we could kind of co-create something that was bigger and better. And uh, I didn't, didn't know exactly what it would look like, but that was my real inspiration to private equity. And, and I used the same trick as I used when I went to Princeton. I just cold called a couple of the most reputable firms in, uh, in Boston. Um, at the time, my mom had gotten really sick. And so I needed to be in Boston and go back to see her. And uh, ended up that the two firms I called really liked that sort of gumption that, you know, would coke all yeah. of them. You know, I got offers and I guess the rest is history. I got some exposure into a private equity industry at a time where it was really hard and unusual to get that, particularly before business school. You know, that is really incredible because so oftentimes people hesitate to just cold call. They think, oh, I can't do that. But look at you sitting here and you had two offers. You made two calls and, and two offers. So once you got into venture capital, you decided you needed a little more education. So you went on to the big school of Harvard. Yeah, I stayed here in Boston, met my wonderful wife. Uh, well, actually, I re-met her. We went to high school together. Oh, she was two years older than me and kept on a cheerleading team. I didn't have a chance back then, but, you know, <laughs> things change. You grow up, you evolve. And so uh, we ended up getting married uh, uh, right before I started Harvard Business School. And uh, again, Boston was uh, was home. And so that was, again, not unusual for people in private equity or even consulting. For me, again, it was a really good opportunity to study a wide range of things with really great people. If there's one theme that I guess I've learned throughout my career is, you know, challenging yourself and challenging environments with great people, it's a pretty good recipe to success. It's a tough road, but it's a good, it's a good recipe. So what did you learn at Harvard that really helped you in this private equity path? I think at Harvard, what we did is we, again, solve so many business problems through the case study method that it became second nature to me to look at a situation, not necessarily panic and kind of figure out, well, where's the challenge and risk in a particular opportunity? And where's the opportunity in this particular opportunity? And look at things maybe a little bit more holistically. I think we all have natural strengths, right? You're kind of right-handed or left-handed. Um, but one nice thing about the general management program at Harvard, you're looking at the total picture. Mm -hmm. And so while I might have come at the industry with maybe a financial bias, because that was just a little more natural to me, I realized that you can't run a business through a spreadsheet, right? There was a lot of other things involved. And Harvard, I think, was really great practice in using that broad, holistic perspective to solve business problems as if a general manager would. Especially in franchising, it seems that it's all so much relationship-based. You have to know your information, but you have to build those relationships. But I have to mention, because the professor in me really just finds this fascinating, you have a Harvard Business Review case study written about you, which I read voraciously and was just thrilled with. So how did that come about and how did you feel about that? Yeah, it was a little weird, you know, I was like, 
Am I that old that they are going to be writing about me? No, it was really humbling. I think it, there was a professor who I really respect, Professor Rogers, who really wanted to bring a little bit more diversity to the case study universe. And there hadn't been a lot of protagonists that were people of color or women. And so he had known a little bit about my story and said, hey, this is a story everyone can learn from. Yeah. And uh, kind of started that. I had gone back to school a couple of times because I'd hired some interns there and they'd done some case studies and we I would tell them a little bit about my story about how I bought a business and there is something too just you know sharing what you've learned by just telling the situation you're in and and then having students say well this is what I would do you know this is what I would think about and I learned a lot by listening to students and I think they learned a lot and again it just it's a wonderful way, I think, to give back to an institution that gave so much to me. That's a fantastic case study and, and one that I'm using. So I think I think it's excellent. So you worked for several private equity firms and then you founded Terra Capital Partners in 2011. And so it's called a lower mid-market private equity firm. Could you explain what lower mid-market private equity means? Sure. So private equity, like any asset class, um, has different stratifications or categories. And so like in public company or public investing, you might hear small cap stocks or mm-hmm. large cap stocks. In private equity, again, if you use that same sort of um, categorization, there's large cap private equity, the big brand name firms a lot of people hear, hear about, you know, KKR, or, um, Apollo, Carlisle. Um, there's middle market firms, which is kind of most of the firms that are out there and a lot of the firms that I worked for. Um, and then there's lower middle market firms. And those lower middle market firms are looking for companies that are, are just a bit smaller, right? Okay. That some private equity firms would say, it's a little small for me, right? And is it really a business yet? Do they have audited financials? Do they have a lot of people? Or is it more of a entrepreneurial or lifestyle business where a lot of the business comes down to one person and one person's relationships and and those sort of things. And so we try to find that sweet spot where a business is uh, what we call it. It's on the cusp of being institutionalized. Like it's a real business. It has profits of at least uh, $3 million Mm -hmm. and it has a team and customers. And so we're not guessing does the business work. but it may need to be professionalized and can certainly grow a lot faster. So I think our expertise is in scaling something that already works and working in partnership with um, the team that's already there to say, how do you get from, I don't know, uh, a certain level of success to another level of scale? Mm -hmm. And you provided a wonderful segue to talk about a company you invested in in 2013 that your firm invested in Planet Fitness. And so today you have the largest Planet Fitness franchise. So you kind of explained why Planet Fitness, but was there anything else that appealed to you about that particular franchise? Yeah, well, look, I had invested in another firm in a business called 24 Hour Fitness. And that was a very successful investment when I was at McCallum DeVoe. I think we made about 11 times our money in that deal. And I learned a lot about um, multi-unit operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, it's like I have three kids. It's like having a lot of children, right? Each one is independent, even though you're one family, yes. right? And that's a unique part of business, right? There's a lot of businesses where, you know, I've invested in manufacturing companies or distribution companies. But when you have a multi-unit business, 
each unit is its own entity, its own business. And um, one of the things that appealed to me about franchising, I think it's a wonderful way to optimize kind of local management of a business because the competitive dynamics are by definition local and you have a multi-unit business. Um, and then leverage the scale and the power of a brand that's national or global in scope. And I think one of the things that appealed to me about Planet Fitness, um, it, was, it was an emerging brand. It was distinct. It wasn't well known yet because we actually started talking to them, I think in 2011, I think we closed in 2012. The other thing that was different about it was its, its actual business model was kind of revolutionary. So at the time, if you wanted to go to a health club, certainly in cities like New York and Boston, you might spend a hundred bucks a month. Right. And even a guy like me that had gone to a lot of good schools would say, that's a lot of money. I don't, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I could afford that, right? Um, imagine what the regular person would say, right? Like, I, I can't spend that much money. Secondarily, the only people that worked out or was marketed to do the workout were really healthy people, right? People who were former athletes or really wanted. And so there was this big gap that Planet Fitness saw where you said, you know what? What do people do when they don't work out, never worked out, but want to get in shape? Mm -hmm. And what do they do if they can't afford it or it's not convenient to them? Mm -hmm. uh, Planet Fitness basically figured that out and said, look, we'll charge people $10 a month. We'll make this an environment where it's judgment-free. In mm -hmm. fact, we actually encourage people that have never been to a gym before. That's probably a good 40% of our membership base mm -hmm. and make them feel welcome and, and, and cherished and, um, and special. Mm -hmm. And uh, different people are at different points in their fitness journey. And so that combination really spoke to me and probably my, my, my humble beginnings. I always said, I'd, I'd love to have a place my parents are, have passed away and my grandmother passed away. But I say, I always would love to have a, a business where they could enjoy right. um, that sort of environment. And I think my, my parents could work out at a, at a place like Planet Fitness. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that for most of the industry. Now, because they revolutionized the industry and grown so quickly, now there are a lot of copycats. Correct. Which I guess at one level is good for society. Um, I think we ended up growing very significantly though, because we caught that tailwind. We said, this is a good brand run by really good people. And um, while it's still a little early, they have what I call proof of concept, you know, they have enough units open. And we talked to some other franchisees and we said, let's, let's jump in. Well, that you chose a great one. I think that they're up to 2000 facilities now. And um, probably when you started, they were in the hundreds, I would imagine. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the number is, but it wasn't a thousand. Yeah, <laughs> so they were no. and they were growing rapidly. But I will say they've uh, they've had a heck of a run, and you know we like to feel like we were a part of that. I think the thing that was a little different about us is Planet Fitness hadn't had uh, a private equity type investor, mm -hmm. so it was a little uncomfortable for them because they're like, "Well, you're not exactly the same as the other franchisees," and we explained to them. Our approach is, you know, we partner again with really good people to really drive the operational side of things. And what we do is bring a lot of jet fuel analytics strategy and just elbow grease if needed. Now, this is unusual, but I ended up becoming the CEO of that business for a couple of years. Yes. Um, and I wouldn't say that's typical for private equity, mm -hmm. but we're a slightly different type of firm. But I say that only 
to highlight the fact that if that's what's needed, a little bit of operational help until mm -hmm. we can get to some scale, we were willing to do that. And that got Planet Fitness Corporate comfortable and said, okay, well, we'll test this out and see if it works. Ended up, it worked out so well that they uh, they opened the floodgates to private equity firms. So now there's probably 10 or 12 of them <laughs> in the system. And, and that's part of what has accelerated the entire system's growth. Because yeah. one nice thing about private equity is instead of um, just taking cash out along the way, they've reinvested into growth and they make their money at the end of the journey, not during the journey, if, if that makes any sense. How many Planet Fitness locations do you have? So, um, well, we ended up, I guess a month ago, selling the majority of our shares to a group called Towerbrook. So now I'm, a, I'm more of a personal minority investor, but I'm still on the board and very much involved. And when we sold, we had about 107 units. So we started with 15 and we grew to 107. And, um, and you know, it's been a heck of a ride. Yeah, excellent. And this is, I'll do the spoiler alert for the Harvard Business Review case. So you had a choice to make. Do you remain the CEO of Planet, the Planet Fitness franchise or do you remain the CEO of Exalter Capital? And so talk to us about that and how you decided. Yeah, it's interesting. It was a really tough decision. Yeah. And in some ways, I, I continue to wrestle with my love of um, seeing people and businesses grow in, in communities. And you see that from a very different vantage point, a closer vantage point as a CEO. I also love investing and I love, I don't know, being more of a coach than a player coach as, a, as a, uh, an investor. And so at the end of the day, it was a wonderful experience to be a CEO. I got to hire great people. I got to see, you know, talk to customers and, and see um, some amazing growth. But at my core, I realized I wanted to be uh, an investor and go back to maybe my natural my natural strength. And quite frankly, there were people that were better at managing the business than me. And I was kind of self-aware enough or uh, had gotten beat up enough to realize that. So I was like, let me hire a, a CEO mm -hmm. that has experiences that I don't have. Mm -hmm. um, David Humphrey's done a wonderful job. He's still still there. And I had a team that I'd already hired that really supported him. Mm -hmm. And that was the right thing. I went to what I call an executive chairman kind of role where I was very active, um, probably even more active than most PE firms, but I didn't want to run the business on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that's one of the powers of private equity, having someone that's really close to everything and knows every little detail and someone that has the benefit of perspective saying, hey, I'm not that close to it by design. And here's a lot of other things we can consider. And one of the things you're doing is really similar to this other business I invested in either 10 years ago or today, or, mm -hmm. and why don't we try that here? Right. And the combination of this, again, is similar to franchising, this kind of bigger, broader, longer term strategy with someone that's closer in proximity to the day-to-day uh, -day operations just brings a real alchemy and a real synergy to thinking about problems in different ways and seeing the world in a different way and creates a lot of opportunity. You know, I'm glad that you talked about the benefits of private equity because private equity is a little bit unknown to a lot of people. And so when you say it, you might as well be speaking a different language at times. So maybe you could dispel the mystery of private equity and talk about how it funds franchising. 
private equity has really gotten deep into franchising the last mm -hmm. 10 years. It's been around a long time. I think it started out as something people would call bootstrapping, right? So mm -hmm. by oversimplified, private equity includes venture capital, growth equity, and leverage buyouts. Venture capital is kind of the stories you hear about Apple and Facebook. Somebody guy has an idea, they're in their garage, they have a person and an idea, give me some money. That's venture capital, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not smart enough to figure that stuff out. <laughs> uh, but that's for the early stage, very optimistic people that, that really build businesses from scratch. Then there's growth equity where they're they're probably close to profitable or profitable and they don't use debt and they just want to invest in them and grow them, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the activity I think we're talking about tends to be leverage buyouts. I think a lot of people actually use the word private equity. They're usually talking about leverage buyouts. And private equities activity in franchising started out with supporting franchisors. That's what I used to look at a lot when I was at larger private equity firms. We get a franchisor in. It was a very attractive business model because they took revenue kind of off the top from the franchisee base. And you could scale the business without investing a lot of extra capital thereafter because the franchisees were doing this. And one of the first things you realize when you're doing due diligence on a franchisor or a brand is you say, well, how happy are the franchisees and are they making money? If you oversimplify it, if those two things are pretty positive, then it's probably a reasonably good investment. For whatever reason though, most private equity firms, particularly control private equity firms, did not want to invest in franchisees. I think part of it is most of us are trained as what they call control buyout firms. We aren't buying a little sliver of the business like venture capital or growth equity. We tend to buy a controlling interest, more than 51%. And so you get a lot of us that are kind of trained to be somewhat control oriented. <laughs> and so the idea of I invest in a franchisee and my franchisor does something bad, I can't change that. And that's scary, right? Now, there were some lenders or mezzanine investors that would support franchisees, but not as much control buyout firms. And so one of my ideas was, well, if everyone likes franchisors, but they get to pay a much higher multiple to get into those. And if the key to a good franchisor is having a good franchisee base, mm -hmm. maybe a less expensive way to play <laughs> franchising is to invest in the franchisees. Mm -hmm. And so that was our idea. And that was one of the things that we, we did. And Planet Fitness, I think, was a, a precedent and how powerful that can be. Planet Fitness Corporate was bought by a private equity firm called TSG that really enhanced the model. Around the same time we got involved and other private equity firms got involved as franchisees. And so we all kind of speak the same language and we could you know, grow the system and improve it. So I think franchising has benefited and private equity has benefited from franchising. It's been a real positive symbiotic relationship. And that's what it is. It's definitely a relationship. So Omar, if someone had a concept they wanted to grow or something or a way they wanted to obtain capital, how would they approach a private equity firm? Yeah, it's a great question. So it depends a little bit on how developed you are. Okay. So imagine you had an idea. I see this a lot in franchising, particularly in franchisors. So they have something good. They know mm -hmm. it works. And they're like, I think I should franchise this. Um, but if you franchise it, while it might not be as capital intensive of putting up all the units yourself, you still need to build out a team to support the franchisees that you bring on. Right. And you probably need to bring out a team or at least think about how you're going to find, recruit, train the franchisees. And so 
that is a sometimes a difficult part of the growth cycle for franchisors where they know they have something, but they can't quite get to the other side because they're resource constrained. And that's in a time when private equity can help. Sometimes, depending on how profitable they are, it may be again on the border. This is it growth equity? Is it is it you know uh, more of a leverage buyout? The distinction there being how profitable is it, and how uh, secure are the cash flows or the profits such that you feel comfortable putting debt on the business. Mm-hmm. But if you are comfortable putting debt on the business, then it's probably you can depend on say three million in EBITDA. And now the question is, how do I really grow this and ramp it up? And so if somebody wants to get private equity capital, um, one way is they can look for an intermediary. Uh, Another way is they can do some research. There's a lot of them that are involved in IFA. And um, another way is just kind of the network. But I think one of the things I tell people before you bring in private equity is be clear. Well, you don't have to know everything, but be, be thoughtful about what do I really want? So I had this conversation with a lot of entrepreneurs all the time. Do you want money? Do you want advice? Do you want to sell out completely? Do you want to sell out partially? Mm-hmm. And there's a spectrum. You know, most of the deals we tend to do are people that want to sell out some, maybe not all. We're comfortable buying all of it, but we prefer the more the partnership model where they take some chips off the table and we buy, you know, typically a controlling interest, but we'll do a minority interest. And we help support their growth. Most entrepreneurs aren't driven by just money, right? They want to see their people grow, they want to see their brand grow, their concept. And so a lot of times they become more invigorated because now they don't have that risk of, if I do anything wrong, all my eggs are in this basket. I can now liberate my mind to think about all the things that are possible. And I have somebody that's done this three or four times to kind of help me think about it. And because I've been a CEO of a private equity backed company and a non-private equity backed company, it's a lonely job. Like, who do you talk to? How do you think about things? Now, again, it's better in franchising because you can talk to other business owners. But I think having a, a, a PE partner can be really, really neat. And so it is a bit of a um, mysterious world, right? I mean, I'm sure there's directories, but there's so many PE firms, you got to find ones that fit with you from a chemistry and, and industry perspective. But there's there are people that can help connect you. If you ask the question, you put it out there. I think your advice about knowing what you really want is sound because oftentimes I don't think folks think about that as crazy as it sounds. But or they think or they think I just want money. I want the highest valuation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, really? Okay, let's say you get the highest valuation and now you got to work with somebody for five to seven years and you hate them. That would or, be terrible. Or they might want to fire your best employee or they have a completely different philosophy. They want to not grow and invest. They just want to milk it for cash flow. Like, would that be worth it? Like, no. Right. But that, those are the sort of things that, you know, if you reflect ahead of time, you can better find the right partner for you. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for you? (laughs) That's a great question. What do I want to be when I grow up? (laughs) My kids, Um, you know, we're exploring a lot of different things. I, I'll tell you what I know and what I don't know, right? So I know I want to continue to invest uh, and I'm working on some very interesting transactions right now. They all happen to be in franchising, which isn't a coincidence because I, awesome. I love okay. franchising. But I think, you know, my background is 
in investing is a little broader than that. But right now we just see some tremendous opportunities mm-hmm. in, um, in that space. And so I think that's going to be a big focus. Now, how we um, execute it is something we're still kind of thinking through, right? Is it like a holding company or a traditional PE fund or something in between? But we do know that we have a unique perspective um, on this business. And we know that there's tremendous opportunities. And while COVID has been really difficult and devastating for a lot of people in the industry, it also creates tremendous opportunity. And so we're really trying to lean into that right now. Correct. Well, my last two questions is the first one is, I know you are very involved and dedicated to giving back. Would you mind sharing with us maybe one of your favorite ways you do that? Oh, gosh. And that's something I want to do a lot more of, actually. So I would say I'm involved in a foundation called the Himes Foundation. It's kind of a industrialist, an industrialist that made a lot of money and created this foundation. And over time, it's grown to focus on basically disadvantaged people in around Boston and, uh, and Chelsea, but has a particular focus on uh, racial uh, equity. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that's powerful about it is, you know, it's about, I don't know, $130 million kind of uh, foundation, but it doesn't need to fundraise and it can do what it feels is best. So having that kind of consciousness is, is wonderful. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges in society right now, um, socioeconomic, uh, there's you know, racial challenges and the work we do, I think, can kind of impact all those things. And what's interesting about it is we not only can make a difference with our grant investments and, you know, nonprofits and people on the front lines that really try to make a difference. And that really reminds me of venture capital, private equity, because we're evaluating these enterprises saying, well, how much impact do they have? And we want to give you money to support that. But one of the things we're spending a lot of time on, I'm actually playing a lead role in as the head of the investment committee is how do we make sure our dollars reflect our values? And so there's a lot of talk around impact investing and or double bottom line investing and, and ESG and, you know, how those things used to be really separate in a, in a foundation, you know, you made money investing in a bunch of stuff. And with that profit, you invested and did good things. And now we're saying, well, you can do good things on both sides of the funnel, right? You can do good things with the investments. And the whole investment world is being more conscious of this. They're all saying, well, I want to make profits, but I want to make sustainable profits. I want to make sure we're not harming the environment. I want to make sure we're not, you know, we're being fair and equitable to people and creating opportunities. So that's something that I'm really, really passionate about and have been enjoying. Sounds great. Thank you. And my last question is, what do you, is there anything you wish you had known before you started looking at franchising? I'll give you a two-part answer. So the front answer is no, because if I knew too much, you know, who knows if I would have jumped in. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Uh, but sometimes I do think ignorance is bliss. Um, I think the thing that's been most rewarding about my journey in franchising has been the people I've met and the generosity of spirit of these people. Franchising is one of these things. And again, I come from an industry where people are friendly, but competitive. Correct. And um, private equity, you wouldn't tell all your trade secrets or you wouldn't tell all your wards. When I got into franchising, I realized the easiest thing to do is ask somebody for help or how they dealt with a situation. And we all help each other. Same brand, different brand. It it was absolutely phenomenal. And 
to this day, I'm like, wow, if I would have known this, it would have been, you know, saved me a lot of hours, you know, doing my own homework or just mistakes I would have made. People are just so uniquely supportive. And um, I don't know if I've ever seen an industry like that. So I kind of wish I knew that beforehand. I probably would have jumped in a lot sooner. Asked a lot more too. So that's great. Well, Omar, you've given us so much great information. Thank you so much for your time. Um, You are definitely an asset to franchising. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kathleen. It's been a pleasure. Franchise You is brought to you by the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. For more information on the center, visit business.louisville.edu slash yumcgfe. Thank you for listening to Franchise You.